0: And often I find that the hip bridge, if the person is more dominant or more the paths that light up these movements are more toward the low back and hamstring, then they will overpower the movement and the glutes will get some attention, but you'll actually be super stimulating those other areas that you're not trying to. So things like the single leg deadlift and different types of lunges are going to be more often than not my go-tos for loading proper pronation Supination mechanics.
1: That was Rocky Snyder, and you're listening to another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Simply Faster. I wanted to let you know about the Simply Faster Clinic, which is going to be hosted at Tony Volani's XPE Sports in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, May twenty first, two thousand twenty two. This clinic will feature Tony Holler speaking on track speed for football using a feed-the-cats approach, Les Spellman highlighting acceleration profiling for speed development, Tony Villani speaking on game speed and separation for agility, as well as Joey Garasio speaking on application of strength, power, speed, and agility to a team setting. To sign up for this clinic, you can go to simplyfaster.com, then their online store, and you'll find the clinic sign-up under promotional. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. In the world of training, we have somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat two approaches. On one end, we have a little bit more of a muscle-centric approach. So train these muscles. If you want to get powerful in this way, train this muscle. Or if this joint's giving you difficulty, train that muscle. And then there's a joint-centric approach to performance. And while training and centering one's efforts on muscles and their actions can absolutely be helpful, I believe that an approach that can serve a greater percentage of individuals' in a sustainable manner. And then one that can really cover more athlete and client needs is one that understands joint mechanics and one that understands how muscles will respond to one's alignment and joint positions. At the end of the day, muscles that are weak, for example, or short or tight or whatever, they didn't just decide to become that way. There was a reason that it happened. and. When we look at the way that the skeleton is aligned and the joints are aligned and that mechanics bring forth actions or changes in the muscle, we can start to understand more about why we find ourselves in various predicaments or how to better prescribe exercises in a way that captures more of the key elements of human motion. And to speak with us about this today, we have back on the show biomechanist, coach, and author Rocky Snyder. Rocky is the owner of Rocky's Fitness in Santa Cruz, California. He is an accomplished trainer with an immense library of knowledge in disciplines such as biomechanics, exercise selection, and neurology. Rocky is the author of the book Return to Center and has a track record of being able to restore functional movement ability to very difficult client cases. Today's episode will be focusing on the joint mechanics of the feet and the hips and how they interact together. Rocky will be talking about proper pronation and supination of the foot and actions of the pelvis. And one thing we'll be specifically getting into is the actions of the transverse arch and how the formation and anchoring of the transverse arch is really important to good foot pronation, as well as things that happen up the chain, like good glute activation. Rocky will be getting into practical exercise interventions that can help us to really bring out these joint actions in athletes in the world of lunging motions, standing twists. And also Rocky will talk about why he favors spiraling single leg standing training two more glute bridge oriented exercises for that functional glute training and really full kinetic training effect that links into the gait cycle. Finally, Rocky will give his take on how loaded carries fit with a balancing effect and a restorative effect from compressive axial loading based work as well as some of the core based training effects that those carries offer. This was a really fun show and Rocky is so intelligent on so many areas and it's really cool to see them link together and it's always great to have them on. Let's get on to episode 303 with Rocky Snyder. Rocky, it's great to have you on again. In the spirit of actually the last episode of the podcast that I just put out, I'm curious in how coaches layer on skills and and thought processes from different areas, different areas of the field as they move forward in coaching. And so, you know, I might have asked you this last time in the podcast, but I'm curious what initially led you into the fitness industry. And then the the schools of thought from different areas of the field, like neurology, breathwork, biomechanics, that you or, or you, working with youth sports. What were some of the what got you started, and what were the things that you added on in your career in fitness?
0: Sure. Well, thanks again, Joel, for having me on. I really enjoy being your guest, and uh, if it's going to be anything like the last episode, I'm I'm in for a really fun conversation. So basically. I couldn't stand gyms when I was growing up. I thought that was the waste of anybody's time. Why would you want to go indoors? Because I grew up in the, the outside, in the, in the backwoods of New England. So to go into a box and lift things up and down repetitively for, for just endless amounts of time, it mean, just seems so absurd to me. However, uh, and of course, I, I grew up doing rock climbing, cross-country skiing, whitewater canoeing, uh, but I was also a gymnast and got into wrestling. So one of my buddies uh, later on in high school, like our, our last year or so, brought me into the gym after uh, summer jobs, after the day it was done. And and I believe it or not, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed lifting and feeling strong. And growing up reading comic books, it kind of felt like, yeah. wow, you know, this is I'm getting the superhero body. And I dug it. And so much so that uh, it was my best form of procrastination. So instead of studying in college for exams. Mm-hmm. I would just go hit the gym. And before you knew it, I just became a gym rat. And, and it was more bodybuilding aesthetics that was really turning me on because I, I'm Hobbit size. You know, I'm really happy if I get over five feet tall. So there aren't a lot of team sports that I would grow up with. Like I could have a mean outside shot in basketball, but there's no way I'm going <laughs> to dunk. You know, so, so the weight training was something that was almost geared toward the shorter guys and bodybuilding as well. So I got really into that. And then I moved out to Santa Cruz after finishing at the university back in Massachusetts. And, and I got a job in a gym, which was like my dream job. I had no idea that you could have a, a career or make money working inside of a gym. And then personal training began about a year after I, I became employed there. And I started working with clients. And But what happened there was, A lot of clients were coming in with tendinitis here and there or low back stuff. And we would just avoid this exercise, but we'd work on this. A lot of machine-based, open-chain, isolated stuff. And then I had a mentor. I found this guy that was talking all about balancing out the tension in the muscular system of your body to achieve better posture alignment so that the joints move better. And those things like tendinitis and back pain and neck pain were going to be mitigated or completely eliminated because the reason why they were occurring, because the body was getting out of alignment. So this was like mind blowing to me. And I started studying posture and the alignment of posture as, as our bodies are at rest, so to speak, as we're standing and fighting gravity. And then taking that resting posture, what does it do when you put it on a playing field or just walking down the street? So I wanted to get into biomechanics and know more about how we take that posture and move through space, which led me into like Gary Gray and the uh, Gray Institute, and eventually Gary Ward with his what the foot and gait mechanics and, and I just started going deep into that, because I found that that superhero complex I had in the gym, carried over into a new phase of helping people get out of chronic and acute pain, and helping athletes achieve a higher level of performance by bringing the body back into a more centrated place where things function at a higher level. And and that took me into brain science. And so I started studying under Dr. Eric Cobb with Z Health, and then the brain health trainer with Ryan Glatt from his program there. And then Cal Dietz recently with his reflexive performance reset and, uh, and, and the stuff that he does with triphasic training out of the University of Minnesota, it's just this, been this awesome rabbit hole of learning. And I guess if there were these big buckets or circles of my work, it had originally started with muscular-centric loading. That took me into powerlifting and Olympic lifting. So I did USA weightlifting in the 90s. So there's that lifting portion, but now there's also motor neurology. And then there's being a biomechanist, biomechanics. I guess those are the big things. That's that's kind of where I am today.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like so many people in the fitness industry got into it because of one of those initial practices. I don't think many people start with neurology it's just, it's just they just oh i'm really into <laughs> neurology i don't care about weightlifting at all i just it's like the the strength practices and it is true i mean when you start i mean it it is it's fascinating to talk about the nuances and biomechanics of training but to me it's always interesting to go back to when i was a kid and you start to you're starting to lift weights and you're seeing the muscle develop and you do it like they're, the superhero type idea i mean i think that we can take it too far but just the idea of seeing your body get better and better and stronger—it's powerful, and it, it ignites in us that that drive to say, "Wow, what can I do with this thing? What can I? How far can I take this?" It, it's cool to see how you took that drive and then put it into all those other areas, at, at like in, in rounding out your total abilities as a, a coach and an instructor. And I, you know, I, I was curious too. You had said before the show you said you've done a lot of youth sport coaching as well, which I think is really valuable. I. The more that I get into it now, I, I'm you know, working with my daughter's five year old soccer team, which offers lessons that I never would have expected to learn as a coach. And I'm curious what your experience is there with your kids and coaching youth sports as well.
0: Oh, uh, it's, it's one of those lifetime memories, right? You're going to hold on to that for a long time. And hopefully you've shaped not only your kids in the proper direction or, or, or led them in a certain path, but then all of their teammates too. So from Little League Baseball for a few years with my son. Uh, to, to youth soccer for, I don't know, 10 to 12 years, going all the way up into almost high school age for both my kids. There was also my daughter a few years back when she was in high school. She was on the, the football team as a, a defensive back and a kicker. So I got to work in the weight room with the football team at the high school level, as well as on the sidelines with the athletic trainer, helping to just keep them in in a centrated place where performance was high. And that's that was like, they called me coach magic, which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. They came off to the sideline. They they tweak something here and there, look at their structure, do a little here and there. And then they're going, okay, great. I'm, yeah, that's gone. I'm back in coach. But the the youth, like your daughter's age and going into the grade school years, what was really cool was it wasn't about program design. It was about the enthusiasm of play and can i take a skill and then utilize that skill in a drill and then take that into a game like a situational state in the game and so we always would do skill drill game and that was our kind of progression as we coached through and it went through that way with every sport so you do a skill so there we go we got the the neurology and biomechanics you got that skill set and then you develop it into something that's fun. So it's not like you're trying to teach youth golf and you have a whole bunch of kids on the driving range, just hitting balls. Cause you're not going to have a lot of kids stay with you if that's what it is, but you start doing some medicine ball tosses in a rotational manner. And that carries over into their golf swing or, or you're going to have them play a little keep away or dodge ball. And that's going to carry over into their baseball or any rotary sport. You know, those are the kind of things that I really could start to geek out on as a strength conditioning coach. How do you apply it as a sport coach too? So, yeah, it was really cool.
1: Yeah, it's been really. I mean, I'm just kind of on the, the you know the the top part of the iceberg in terms of what I'm getting into. With that I, I I know I'm excited to you know get in more experience with that and. Especially once the like you said, like some of the skills come more into it. If I'm still coaching youth sports at that point, I know I have a lot to look forward to there. Rocky, so I there's one question that well, I'm excited to ask you a lot of questions, but one is just I feel like it's a can of worms in some way. <laughs> because I I've, open heard, it. Come I've on. heard I've heard um I'm at a point in my own career where I'm just learning all about biomechanics. I mean, for the last several years, it's been just a massive interest of mine and and ever really since I've started this podcast, but you have pronation, supination, and When people talk about pronation, I've heard even like, is overpronation really a thing? And uh, just to preface too, for listeners out there, pronation, the flattening of all three arches of the foot or the unlocking of the foot uh, during the loading phase of gait. So overpronated athletes would be labeled as those who have the collapsed foot, the collapsed arches, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's special shoes (laughs) uh, to the asterisk there for those athletes. Anyways, your take on overpronation, pronation pronation overpronation. And what does that term mean to you?
0: Oh, yeah, we are going to open up a can. That's good. So you defined it very well, where pronation is the lowering or dropping of the three arches within the foot. So we've got the medial arch, which everyone thinks of when you think of the arch of the foot, the one that runs from the big toe to the inside of the heel, that inside arch. You've got that shallower outside arch, the lateral arch on the outside portion of the foot that runs from the pinky toe, more or less, the the ball of the foot down to the heel. And then you've got the roofier foot, which creates that arch also. We call that the transverse arch. In order for pronation to occur and for those arches to drop at the same time, what has to happen is that the rear portion of the foot which is the heel bone and the bone that sits on top of it, the calcaneus and the talus, when they move in the opposite direction, that all the other bones from there forward of the foot move. So we'll call it the forefoot, the tarsals and metatarsals for the most part. So almost like cog wheels in machinery, where one is going to rotate clockwise and the teeth are connected, the other wheel is going to have to rotate counterclockwise. Now, that would need to occur in all three planes of motion if we're going to get all three arches to drop. So, in pronation, we need to have opposition in the sagittal plane between the rear foot and the forefoot, in the frontal plane, as well as transverse. Now, if somebody is lowered in all those places, that would be over pronation, where they're not at this point for whatever reason, able to reform back to a neutral position where there's some shape of arches to the foot. Follow me so far? Yeah. Okay. Now, often is the case, somebody will look down at a foot and they'll say, that's pronating, when that may actually not be the case. A lot of times, but not every, a lot of times we see the foot collapsing inward toward the inside arch but the whole foot is collapsing inward. That means that the rear foot and the front of the foot are moving in the same direction rather than in opposite directions. So therefore, that foot is just simply everting or rolling inward. We call that eversion, where the outside is kind of rolling away and upward. That foot is everted, not necessarily overpronated. And the same thing when you see somebody with a really high arch, you may say, oh, they're overly supinated. Mm-hmm. Well, if we, if we have over, over supination, we should see, again, opposition between the rear foot and the forefoot, one rotating out, but the other one trying to stay on the ground by rotating in. So sometimes what will happen is the foot will just be fully inverted, where the forefoot and the rear foot are both rolling away and away from the middle and toward the outer edge. How, does that sound right? Does that make sense.
1: Yeah. So far, so good.
0: Okay. So, so we have a whole bunch of situations that occur. Remembering that there's 26 bones and 33 joints in the foot, and they're all meant to move and and position themselves in a certain way when you're pronating and when you're supinating. So there's a lot going on. But if we can just simplify it, overpronation is when the inside portion of the rear foot is rolling inward. And the opposite is happening to the forefoot. So um, what's the next question? Like, what do we do with that?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, just a quick question to define that. So um, yeah, one thing that I would look at with that, or um, I guess the way that I'm seeing it as you explain it is an overpronate. So everyone needs to pronate, obviously, but it's only overpronation if you're, um, it's almost like if you're not actually pronating, you know? <laughs> like, cause if you're, if your heel is everting, so crashing to the outside as uh, maybe a visual, like, and then the forefoot is also, uh, like the fifth, the pinky toe, I would imagine like an over in an over pronated foot, the ball of the pinky toe is also like lifting up off the ground as the forefoot, like everts and crashes it. Does that make, like, would that be an yeah. over pronated foot to you? Or, uh, I mean, I guess if pronation, cause pronation, you have to have all three points, right? So you kind of don't there. Uh, is, right. How does that? How does that fit with? Uh, what you're saying yes
0: so that's great so imagine that the three points of contact like you just referred to we've got the ba- base of the heel the calcaneus you've got the ball of the foot by the big toe that first metatarsal head and you got the ball of the foot by just before the pinky toe the fifth metatarsal head during pronation all three should stay in contact you know a Barr and all your other guests are, are quick to say that too and that's how it should be but what happens like you say if your whole foot rolls to the inside And it comes crashing down, but that pinky pad, that fifth metatarsal head lifts off. That's just the whole foot rolling over. So that's not pronation. That is a whole foot everting. That's quite different. You know, you're not having the drop of the arch on the outside. And for that matter, you're probably not going to see a huge drop on the transverse plane. Most likely, the only real lengthening and drop is going to be the medial arch on the inside of the foot.
1: Yeah. Um, so based off of what I just said, and, it, you know, it's always fun. I enjoy the challenge of my mind trying to, you know, host a podcast, have a picture of the foot in my head, you know, all these things at the same time. Uh, yeah. So for, based off what I just said, I'm just curious, um, so I can better understand your explanation. Is what yeah. I, was I just explained with like the, the, the outside edge of the foot coming off uh, during that mid stance? Is that a much yeah. different than how you were explaining over pronation? Are there some key differences there between those two ideas or models?
0: No, I think you were, well, the, if the outside of the foot is rolling off, then what's going to happen is there's not going to be really any change in the arch itself. Now, uh, wishing this were a, a video, but I, at least you and I are on video here and I've got a foot in my hands and it's a left foot. So in order for pronation to occur, the heel rolls inward while the forefoot is level with the ground for the most part. So the rear foot is rolling in, forefoot's hitting the floor. So if I were to straighten out the, freeze this position, what we should find is that the forefoot is actually inverting, which is, in this case, Mm -hmm. it would be considered kind of rolling outward while the heel is rolling inward. So that's along the frontal plane. We should see that. If we don't see that difference, if everything rolls in, then what's really happening is just the whole foot is creating eversion and not pronation. We need to see there be a difference of motion between the rear foot and the forefoot. So whether it's mid stance, if you're loading into it, or better yet, as you toe down, that is really when the toe hits the ground and that's, that's the ultimate point of pronation. The the end ranges of absorbing and landing on planet Earth. Everything from that point on is the journey off the ground and for push-off. So we begin to see supination occurring.
1: Got it. Uh, yeah, it is, you know, without a visual, it's, it's definitely it's a little hard. harder. But I think I, a way I can explain it, um, just I guess through words, and this is, you mentioned Darien Bard. this is something he's talked about a lot. He's worked with, you know, in my time where I had the opportunity to work with him for years. Um, who would talk about this is almost like the, a really important thing to him was the anchoring of the transverse arch. So the transverse arch is that little span between for, I guess, you know, and Gary's book, I think it can be a longer span, but I mean, for generalities, it's either like the ball, of the big toe, ball, of the pinky and the space between like a bridge between those two, if you will.
0: And yeah, exactly.
1: Darian was very much a proponent of, of anchoring that transverse arch. So you're, you're putting that down and it is an anchor. It is a fulcrum. And from what you're talking about, it seems as if, you know, if, if over pronation, you know, if you're talking about over pronation, like if, as long as you get a good anchoring of those two, the ball, the the transverse arch anchors down, it would be hard to over pronate. You know what I'm saying? Like based off everything you're saying, if you can anchor that transverse arch really well on the ground, those points of contact are solid, there's a nice bridge, like that transverse arch is hopefully lifted a little bit. It seems like it would be hard to screw up the pronation process. Would that make sense?
0: It would make sense. Yeah. I mean, if you can anchor down first and fifth met and allow the heel, the calcaneus to move in the way it should, then you're going to have really great foot mechanics for the most part. There'll always be exceptions to Mm -hmm. everything that we say here, but for the most part, yes, you're going to have really good movement in that rear foot as it relates to the forefoot. But most people have a hard time doing that. Mm -hmm. Most people are going to come crashing down too quickly on the first met head or the fifth med head's going to lift up, and you're going to lose that anchoring. And so therefore, you're not really, like you say, you're not really overpronating. You're just, you're collapsing inward, which I don't consider that an overpronation. It's just poor foot mechanics. And when I say poor foot, it's not the most efficient, ideal way the foot should move. The cool thing is, is that is a solution that your brain has tried to come up with for something going on in your body, right? It's not a problem. So if we could just put a little asterisk next to this statement here, that this is a huge kind of paradigm shift that in terms of thinking about things in the body, everything the body is trying to do is it's trying to solve every problem it can. So when you are having like a foot that is coming crashing down, it's doing that for a reason. And it's, it, that's the solution. So can you give it a different solution that's more effective and more efficient, and then integrate that into the whole system? And that's when the magic really occurs.
1: If you haven't heard of the Elastic Essentials course or seminar, I wanted to quickly fill you in on this transformative educational opportunity. This past year, I put a comprehensive course together on the evolution of my training system, and it's called Elastic Essentials. I designed this to help coaches deeply understand the principles by which human beings produce effective athletic movement. I've spent many years trying to figure out why athletes were getting stronger in the gym, but they might not have matched that strength with their explosive and dynamic abilities. And I've experienced this both as a track coach and a strength coach, and it led me on a journey to really dig in on those key elements of explosive, ballistic, and quality athletic movement in a way that really gives athletes or leads athletes to their full potential. In the Elastic Essentials course, I highlight my evolved view on plyometrics, sprinting, strength training. I go in-depth on the foot and lower leg dynamics to a level far beyond anything I've put out on this podcast or social media. And I also speak on how I totally shifted my approach to maximizing key bodyweight elements that not only helps athletes move better, but also helps them to reach their athletic strength potential. The course is tied together in a detailed programming module and it also offers five awesome bonus interviews on top of the main curriculum. Not only will this course accelerate your evolution as a coach, but it's also worth certified CEUs for organizations such as the NSCA and NASM. Coaches who have taken this course have said it's the best ConEd money they've ever spent. They've said they would pay multiples of the listed price, such as saying they would pay $1,000 for this course. But you can get this course right now for a fraction of that and you can head to justflysports.com to check it out and sign up today also in addition to the online course i'm hosting an in-person live seminar july 22nd and 23rd in cincinnati ohio you can check that out as well on justflysports.com okay let's get back to the show yeah you know as you're as you're talking about that thing kind of went off in my head that it was maybe like four years ago um maybe I have to judge this by early episodes of the podcast, but Zig Ziglar, who is not the motivational speaker the foot, foot biomechanist and really good with the foot. He has these like insoles that are it's, it's, he calls them like the anti-orthotic and basically what they are uh, is it's almost like um, right behind the transverse arch. It's like a bump that rises up like a little, it's not like a. it's way smaller than a half golf ball, like a half, I don't know, like I'm just trying to think like a kid's balance. It's small. It's not like, but it, but it, it almost like is this dome that's shoving your foot's mass down equally into the transverse arch, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like a little hill that, um, that the bones of your foot, the transverse arch, like it sits behind it and it, it throws the pressure down into that transverse arch. And I remember um, the first day I, I put those on, I had them in just you know, minimal shoes out in the track and I felt my glutes so much the next day, way more than normal. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, okay, better transverse arch pronate yeah. better glutes yeah. work better yes like there yes. we go
0: that's it <laughs> excellent yeah you know so and, and to take it into a one one level of like the skeletal system with when you look at architecture and you look at a roman arch there's always one stone at the top of the arch and that is the keystone right it's shaped like a, a, a like a, a keyhole or a keystone in the old, old doors so they call it a keystone and that is the That is the most important stone that keeps the arch rigid. And when there's weight going down onto that arch, it creates even more rigidity. So we've got three arches that come down and contact the floor. We've already mentioned where they contact. The transverse arch contacts between the first met and the fifth met head. Medial arch is the first met and the calcaneus. And the outside lateral arch is the fifth met and the calcaneus. So these three arches have three points of contact, but they also have three keystones that allow for the rigidity to occur. And when we're talking about the transverse arch, there's a small bone and part of the tarsal bones, and it's called the second cuneiform or the middle cuneiform. And that is the keystone. And it happens to be most likely underneath Ziegler's little anti-orthotic. that spot that you were feeling that little ball, I'm going to bet, was right under your middle cuneiform, right? So yeah. um, it's just very interesting. If we keep that, that's going to encourage the anchoring of the fifth and first met to the ground, which is going to really engage that glute. I mean, it's just, it all makes sense to me how you just laid it out.
1: Yeah. Is that uh keystone of the transverse that's the cuneiform? Is that like about second toe level? Or se- I-, I thought it was about second, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Second, third, right around there. Exactly.
1: I I saw that a few months ago and it instantly a light went off because it was uh, Chong Zi who was on this podcast a long time ago talking about like the hyper arch foot and and those characteristics. He, one of the things that I think, I don't think he maybe mentioned it when he was on, but he had always posted or he had posted about it was these really elite jumpers or athletes. I know jumpers for sure. I'd be curious of other, you know, field sport athletes or whatever. Um, But they have like a little callus oftentimes under the ball of their second Toe, like not the big toe, because and I guess if it would make sense if it's under the ball your big toe, maybe you are kind of over. You're just rolling off the inside edge of your foot too much. Like the big toe isn't stopping things. But I kind of yeah. thought about that in the sense of I wonder if that also represents a balance point, like a that's like almost that. Like if the balance point is that that cuneiform, like that second toe, that's like the the bridge, that's the keystone of the bridge. Well, wouldn't it make sense that in an ideal foot, like maybe the the callus, like maybe that key point would be right under. I mean. I know in Gary Ward's, you know, in, in that school, I thought it would be more like, well, it should be, you know, ball, big toe should be the main. And, but I guess I was just thinking dynamic movement, floating center. No, no, you, know.
0: you got it right. Like if we look at the center of mass of the body and how it travels over the surface of the foot when you're walking, running, so on, it, it begins by the outside back portion of the heel where we strike, where we should. It dips inward as the foot pronates toward the, toward the inside arch, but then it starts meandering outward toward the fifth met, but at the very end, it goes right through the second met and into the first toe itself. So with those elite sprinters, it it doesn't surprise me at all that would be under that second met hit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. I, in all foot assessments, it's like you know, you got standing. You're standing from the front, the back, the side. But it's like, yeah, you know, seeing the, the the calluses too tells an interesting story. I mean, you could look at the shoes too, right? But like just seeing yeah. calluses on the foot too. It's yeah,
0: and interesting. Like if if that callus was just shifted a little bit more outward between the second and third, you'll most likely have somebody complaining of a Morton's neuroma mm-hmm. because that is just the soft patch that the transverse arch has collapsed to some degree. And now the main point is going right down mm. in between and it gets irritated. And so uh, it's, it's interesting. Just pain is really measured in millimeters. So was yeah. success, you know, when it comes to this.
1: Yeah. I know. Yeah. Darian Bartel, it's, he had said a lot like millimeters equal waves, like a millimeter anywhere in the body could be a big wave somewhere else. And I constantly have Huge. to think about that when I'm getting into biomechanic, like detail stuff, because people are like, Oh, this, you know, talk about these minute relative motions of joints. And 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 I try, I'm like, I have like my hands on my hips and I'm like trying to feel, okay, wait this. And it's so little, but I'm like, this is a big deal when it actually comes to dynamic movement. It's just, I guess that's the reward for sticking with it when you really do have to hash out some of these little details.
0: Yeah. The, the symbol, uh, the, the analogy that I sometimes will, will share is holding a laser pen in your hand and aiming it at the center of the moon in the night sky. And all I want you to do is move that pen one millimeter. What's the, how much is it really going to travel on the face of the moon? I and mean, that's, we're talking hundreds or thousands of miles. I mean, that's, it just shows you further up the chain, just like a Darien, you know, a, the wave action, same thing. We could have one minute adjustment in somewhere in your body and it could have a, an avalanche effect somewhere else. Just this whole cascading of power or a reduction of power.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I love that. Like, yeah, the, the, the millimeters equal, it's nice to have the the visual with the, the laser pen on the moon. I, I like yeah. that a lot. I, I was, um, before I forget. So, uh, super interesting, the Morton's neuroma and the collapsed transverse arch. So, it's almost like uh, um, the second, like, a callus near the second, big, under the second toe could almost be indicative of a healthy transverse arch. Like, I, I think about it in terms of, I don't know, like, I just like thinking of it in terms of arches, like the state of the arches of the foot and how they are operating when we're doing just normal things. And I think if someone has, like, a transverse arch that's very flat and all the, that's just sitting flat to the ground... Sometimes it's like, well, no, we have to take care of that first, you know, before we, I guess, try to, it's like you want don't want to just try to do stuff to give yourself a callus on one side if your, your arches aren't formed up. Like you have to take care of those first before you start, I think, getting into too many other things.
0: Yeah. And I think this leads us into kind of where you were, I think you were wanting to go. Yeah, what do do you do do about it? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so we got to think about how we move and, and what, what just let's think about the muscles and what a muscle has to do in order to to have the human body move. The first thing that the muscles are going to do, they're going to need to decelerate every step we take when we land, right? It's the the first step we take is is us, our body, our mass going forward and onto a foot that's going to, for the most part, crash on planet earth. So there needs to be a certain uh, reaction that not just the foot, but like every single joint in the body is responsible for doing when we come landing on planet earth. And then in another moment, the opposite is going to have to occur when we push off of that foot and we basically drive off the planet, which are our two basic forms of movement. We're either landing on planet earth or we're driving off the planet. And every joint in the body has to have a role to play On each of those separate occasions. So, when we're landing, the muscles, a lot of the muscles are going to be spreading out, absorbing impact. Think of like an octopus landing on the ground, it's just splaying out. All that muscle tissue is like rubber bands, lengthening and slowing the collapse of the body completely to the ground, preventing us from falling. And then there's going to be this moment of an isometric contraction where we're no longer lengthening, but now we're going to have to reverse direction and begin shortening to propel us forward or to a new location. And that's the moment of like supination. So every muscle in terms of movement needs to lengthen before it shortens. The nervous system will sense that lengthening through all those proprioceptors and mechanoreceptors and nerve cells. And we can list a whole whole bunch of them in the muscle, tendons, fascias, and and joint capsules, but they send signals to the brain to say, okay, we need to slow this down and we need to reverse directions. So the muscle has to lengthen before it shortens. So what do we do when we have a foot that seems to be flat, we'll say, where the arches are dropped? Well, there's one line of thought right now, one school of thought that we're going to do a whole bunch of short foot exercises where we're going to take a a towel or a newspaper underneath a foot, and we're just going to claw with the front of our toes and our feet to try and draw that arch up, which is good. And it may be effective for some people, but it doesn't take into consideration that the muscle needs to learn how to lengthen before it shortens. Mm-hmm. It's just simply going to go, okay, you need to be shorter. We're going to shorten the heck out of you. And we're, in, in order to do that, I can't be anchored with my first and fifth med right? I've got to actually have those slide toward my heel if that arch is going to lift. So now it's really an open chain exercise that I'm trying to do to create an arch in my foot. And again, that could be successful. However, understanding movement and how muscles are behaving, I might want to do something completely different, which is I need to somehow create more length in muscles that are already lengthened. So, that the proprioceptors or mechanoreceptors begin firing to initiate the stretch shortening reflex that is inherent within that structure. So, therefore, I need for that flat foot to somehow get even flatter and load into that tissue for there to be some type of shortening response. And that's where we use like those foam wedges that the last time you and I met in person, I pulled out some of those wedges and we started playing around with it because that allows a different timing pattern of the contacts of the foot to occur against the ground. It allows a a sooner contact in in some areas, maybe it slows somewhere else down, initiating this lengthening and loading into the tissue on the base of the foot so that when it comes back up, now it's actually getting this shortening reflex to occur. And you do that um, and you begin to see that the foot starts behaving differently, that, that overly flat foot now has some spring to it and maybe it's just a millimeter heck it could be even just a half a millimeter but there's a change there's a difference the brain has woken up it's it started to uh, wake up to that foot that's beginning to move instead of just be this flat flipper
1: yeah i I would look at that almost the same way as um i, I or maybe I'll say this like when you pronate correctly you get A better firing pattern up the chain as well like you get when you get that flattening of the arch a little bit of uh ir the tibia and you get that spiraling effect you get a better like vmo response of of the inner quad you get better glute response uh like you could pretty much you could feel that really easily and i know the first time we were able to train together and did the podcast you had me doing that step up and uh, like a lot of the things were not knee ahead but knee over big toe and it's like wow there's my vmo Wow, I didn't, that, I never knew it could contract so strong. And then you feel your glutes more. And, the, you know, it's, it's almost like there's, there are two ways to do it. Like you said, like you can do a short foot where you're actually contracting the arch and you're going to get some results. Like you're going to, you're, you're getting more of a neural drive to those muscles. You could be more, they could be more awakened for lack of a better term. Like you're, you're cr- increasing their strength. I look at it almost as in a similar way to like, like barbell hip thrust. I mean, I like barbell hip thrust exercise. Uh, I think it's a great way to train, like to increase the strength and size of glutes. But it's interesting because the the research on the hip thrust is a little mixed in terms of sprint speed. I mean, anecdotally, I've had some good results with track and field athletes with them, but it, I, over, as the years have gone by, I've definitely gravitated and I will occasionally use a hip thrust with, with the back elevated for more of a full range of motion or putting a, a block between the knees to kind of encourage some of that spiraling action and loading of the glutes. I guess what I'm trying to say, I still use them not as much as I used to. And I think I use them a little bit less now because it, the way I see it, if I can get the glutes to, to engage more through lengthening through that internal rotation of the femur, now the glutes are lengthening in a single leg squat or whatever you're doing, or maybe you're just doing a bilateral squat and they're able to internally rotate and externally rotate more, lengthen the glutes more, get more glutes in a regular squat. I'd rather have that than to need to do an extra Strength exercise to get them. Um, I feel like it's the same way with the feet. You know, like if you can get the feet joints to work the way they're supposed to, then you're good. Like you don't need to do all this extra stuff necessarily. Again, I think there is time where there is some extra work that can be needed. And and again, I will say there are occasionally a few athletes I do still program hip thrusts for. It's just different. It's like the more you understand joints, the less that you have to have everybody do those things.
0: Agreed. I mean, if you if you understand what every joint does in order to pronate. Like you were saying, tibial, internal rotation, knee going toward the medial line, VMO firing, you know, without even naming the, the, the muscles. But what should the pelvis be doing? Is it anteriorly tilting or posteriorly tilting? Is it tilting off to one side or another? And which way is it going to rotate? If you know what the pelvis should be doing at the moment of pronation, that gives you insight as to what should be going with your athletes. And then if you don't see those happening, then you're going, oh, okay, this is what we need to have happen. And when those joints and bone structures move in the proper way, well, the muscles that attach to them are going to have to behave the way they should. So rather than chasing one muscle and saying it's your glute medius or your VMO or your adductor magnus or whatever it may be, why don't we just watch and follow the bones? And once we know what every bone is doing, that's going to take a lot of the guesswork away. And I will say that I I don't give a lot of hip bridging away uh, in terms of program design. One, because I'm not actually loading vertically into a system and trying to integrate a whole bunch of joints to happen. It's much more of an isolated thing. And often I find that the hip bridge, if the person is more dominant or more the paths that light up these movements are more toward the low back and hamstring, then they will overpower the movement and the glutes will get some attention, but you'll actually be super stimulating those other areas that you're not trying to. So things like the single leg deadlift and different types of lunges are going to be more often than not my go-tos for loading proper pronation, supination mechanics. And then that way I can also see how does this feel on the right side compared to the left side, which we haven't even brought up, but most likely you're going to have one foot that is behaving quite differently than the opposite, especially with track athletes because they're continually running clock counterclockwise and therefore their their stride length on one hip is going to be different than the other the contact on one foot on against the ground is going to be in a different place than the other because the force that they're having to generate around in that circular pattern
1: yeah yeah i i you know as you're speaking of that too i think i like you say you don't give away a lot of hip bridges in your programs anymore i I view it more almost at my own experience. You know, I like the, when I first started using hip bridging and hip thrusts. As I was about twenty seven when I first started it, and and within about maybe four to six weeks of doing it, it is funny how our memories change. Maybe it was two months. You know, like the, the memories do change over time slightly. But it was somewhere in like the six week window, I want to say, of doing like a hip bridge type exercise, I noticed my sprinting had changed. Like my my two hundred meter sprinting, I was using way more hips glutes. Felt more glutes in the right, felt faster. Like, I was definitely getting faster and sustaining speed, but like that was the good amount of that. And then when I took my hip thrust up another 100 pounds later, it didn't help at all. In fact, I think it would probably, uh-huh. it probably actually started to go the other direction. And that's why I think it always goes back to like, like, oh, when you use strength as, I mean, I guess you, I, I, <laughs> part of me wants to say the word band-aid but i don't like that word it's it's a infusion like i, I almost use like a, like a little nitrous oxide injection or it's a little bump like it's a little bump hey you get this this muscle group is like and here's a strength bump like this will help you get a little bit better like you can use those bumps but you can't keep bumping like you, eventually you have to get to the baseline like that that central point of joints and i just think that if if like different strength movements and additions are your sustainable, this is the only way we train this. Eventually that that's not sustainable anymore. You're not gonna see a you're gonna start to see a disproportionate of gains, and then eventually maybe even a reversal. And if nothing else, it was extra energy you didn't need to spend. So uh, yeah, that's definitely why I, I was kind of almost rehashing in my own mind like that that yeah, No,
0: that's really well said. There will be a time where you if you can home in on that that pinnacle of strength where you're in that proper space, then anything beyond that or less than that is not going to give you the same dividends. So you're, you're constantly chasing that if, if that's what you wanna do too. But we, there's so many other ways to harness explosiveness and strength in the body that it's just not the muscular approach that we have grown up with, so to speak. This is that we're so muscle centric in the gym setting that uh, just simply by watching joint motion could could be a huge shift in and how somebody coaches and and looks at program design but also knowing that the overall governing body being the neurological system you know we, if if the messages aren't being sent properly then you could have the biggest muscles but if if they're not being told properly what to do then you're you're losing out there too
1: yeah for sure, um rock, you mentioned a little bit about the the actually the pelvis and hips, and this is something I, I haven't spoken on in this podcast so much I, I've spoken a lot on just the foot but but I'm very interested as well in in top down regulation basically what's what is the what are the forces coming down from the rib cage and pelvis the way that the femurs mm-hmm. are even being steered and how the feet might have to compensate. Could you speak a little bit on what you're looking for out of the pelvis when we're looking at pronation? So, we're, we're looking at when someone has a dysfunction or if we're trying to retrain it along with the wedges and things like that. Are there particular yeah. things that you're looking at with the pelvis or the rib cage?
0: Yeah. You did, honestly, great question. There's only The pelvis is just a bony structure, right? It's it's not a joint. The femur comes up to the pelvis and makes the hip joint or the spine comes down and starts into the pelvis and makes the SI uh, joint. So, It's bones attaching to this bony structure, but the, the structure of the pelvis itself, it only has so many ways in which it can move. So it can tilt forward and anterior tilt, which will help create hip flexion, or it can posteriorly tilt with hip extension. And that's your two options in the sagittal plane. We can either rock forward or rock backwards. So what is the quality of a person's ability to tilt forward and backwards? If they struggle to tilt forward, they may struggle with hip flexion. Knee drive makes sense, right? If if they struggle to posteriorly tilt the pelvis, they may struggle to have hip extension. So, glute, hamstring complex, all that may not be key. Now, in the frontal plane, we've got a couple of options. We can just translate or slide the pelvis to the right. And equally slide it over to the left. So in terms of running or walking, this is the moment that we are shifting our weight over primarily to one leg to allow the other one to swing forward so we can take the next step. So what is that like? Are we able to glide or translate the pelvis in a very parallel level aspect equally to the left and to the right? Well, we might find if somebody were just simply stand and assess what it's like to sway their hips to the left and to the right, that there's going to be a little difference. Maybe I can successfully sway to the left and feel like that's really easy. But when I sway the pelvis off to the right, it feels like I'm a little stuck. Maybe I struggle. Maybe I have to create some force to actually drive into that position. So how is it that that translates into my running or walking? Well, maybe I'm not fully getting over this foot and therefore I'm not fully going to be Pronating properly or driving off of it in soon pedation. So that translation of the pelvis is, is pretty huge. And in order for me to go over to one side or another, now we're talking about glute medius, abductors, IT band, and so on. Uh, we may also be talking about the quadratus lumborum that attaches the ribs to the top of the pelvis, the QLs. Maybe they're not lengthening and shortening the way they should. So we can start mapping out the muscles based on how that pelvis moves. Now, in the frontal plane, the pelvis can also tilt sideways, where one side hikes up while the other one drops. These occur during pronation. When we're fully landing on one leg, the other side is dropping off and we're taking all of the force on that landing foot. So the glute is now having to lengthen and the proximal portion of the hamstring is lengthening and all this tissue is lengthening to slow me down and then get ready to drive me off that leg. So if I am struggling to hike one side or drop the other, vice versa, I might be encountering some issues of, of properly loading and pronating into one side or the other. And then lastly, we've got the transverse plane. So does that pelvis rotate to the right and to the left in a really balanced manner? And when you assess that, you might want to check in with how that rotation is created. Is it by driving the hip forward on one side to create rotation? Or are you using the other hip to draw it back to go in that same direction? And when you go to the other side, what is that like? What people will most likely find is um, a few different outcomes might be occurring. Maybe I'm just pulling back with my hips to create rotation. Maybe I'm driving both hips to create the rotation. And then there'll be other people that are like, well, I'm pulling back with my left hip to rotate toward the left. But I'm also pushing forward with my left hip to rotate right. What the heck's happening on the right side of my hip? Why? What's not going on there? So just by assessing how the pelvis moves, it's going to tell us a lot about the mechanics down below. For instance, in pronation, when I'm fully pronated, my pelvis should be anteriorly tilting. It should be hiking on the side of the pronated leg. And it should be rotating away from the pronated leg toward the, toward the back leg. And if we can achieve that, well, that's a huge start right there. That means all the muscles are going to have to respond in kind by either lengthening or shortening or whatever they need to do to create that pelvic position. And once that pelvis is there, it's going to send the proper mass down through the leg and into the foot. And if the foot responds in kind, man. You've just made yourself almost a bulletproof athlete and a bulletproof ACL and high hamstring pull is going to not be there. It's going to be a whole bunch of things when we get the joint mechanics to behave properly.
1: Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chilijit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You could check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you, which is that you can get free. You do pay a few dollars shipping, but you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse. that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free uh, along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I, I just have one quick follow-up. Well, two quick follow-up questions on that. One was, actually, I was, I was thinking back to when you first said... um I feel like maybe this is relative, like you mentioned anterior pelvic tilting being more related to your ability to uh, flex at the hip and posterior with extend. I was thinking like in squatting, that would seem to be the case because a posteriorly tilted individual usually has a hard time squat. They usually have to like shove their knees way out and it just is, you know, it's kind of a struggle for them. But an anteriorly tilted individual, like an Olympic weightlifter, that's their their thing. They get into that internal rotation and flexion. I guess, what, I, but sprinting, like sprinters are are usually like anteriorly tilted and you, you couple that with hip extension in, in like dynamic activity. I was just curious what your frame your frame was for that. I, I was looking for a little clarification there before I asked you my next question, which might relate so, to...
0: So, with a sprinter who has a pelvis that at rest in a normal resting posture is more anteriorly tilted, is that what you're speaking of?
1: Yeah, yeah. They bias a little anterior just in that, um, the yeah. way that they move.
0: So... What, so if we want to just look at the, the muscles that surround the pelvis, we've got the rectum, uh, middle of the quadricep, attaching just below the ASIS, that bony portion in the front of your pelvis. It wraps straight on down over the kneecap and attaches to the tibial tuberosity of the shin, right? And that what would be the, the length relationship when the pelvis is tilted forward with that? The, the proximal portion up by the hips are going to be shortening. And so if they're living in that shortened state and that has been normalized because the pelvis is anteriorly tilted forward, what does that mean in terms of hip drive? How is that going to affect their ability to drive and extend that hip to propel them forward? If that muscle is bound up in a shortened state, will they be able to really allow that to lengthen the way it should? chances are it's probably not going to happen at the rate of speed or the degree of length that it should. So to overpower that restriction, we're going to get something else to create that propulsion. We may see it down in the calf. We may see it more in the hamstring. In the hamstring, because of how it affects the knee and driving through there, we may not see full extension of the knee, if we're not seeing full extension of the hip. So sprinters, just like any other athlete, ultimately would best be suited to come from a place of of neutrality, of a centrated state. Based on a lot of the training they do, however, they're probably going to find that they're more inclined to be anteriorly tilted. And it's not necessarily making them a better athlete. They're just better at getting around the imbalance that they currently have. So it may be more of a statement as to the type of program that has been designed for their success. If they were to focus on proper movement of the pelvis, restoring it more to a neutral place, chances are their speed will increase, their power output will increase.
1: Yeah, I know. With with sprinting too, if you're just pretty much a sprinter, like your job is to go in a straight line, you are benefited by just generally projecting your your like your sternum, your chest, your center of mass in front of yourself, which yes. the lower body response that is to tip forward. I, you know, Kyle Dobbs said this on the podcast a while ago, and I can't remember his exact wording, but basically, it's like the idea, like just with loading the glutes, like you want some IR to stretch the glutes, like you also want a bandwidth. You need some posteriorly tilting to create you need to have you can't just be stuck in a couple like anterior tilt and not be able to move you need some posterior tilt ability to posteriorly tilt to like load up basically and then you get back in anterior and you have that ground like that mid stance and and you create that explosive potential but unless you can create a posterior tilt leading up to that mid stance you're just not creating a whole lot of power so even though they're in you know anterior they're still Like there's still uh, motions going on from front to back. They just kind of bias anterior a little bit. I, 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 so I don't want to get, um, I don't want to take too long on that point. It was just, it was just kind of leading up to my next question because I wanted to understand where you were coming from with that, which, which makes sense. Um, and that is uh, just like an example. Like if you uh, were doing uh, like a, like a, or like a slider reverse lunge or something like that. Yeah. Let's say, and you're working on pronation, and you have wedges on the foot. Um, Like, I believe from Gary's, uh, Gary Ward's frame, like the front leg, the leg that's flexing, and the, the, whereas the back leg's going back. Like, what are you looking out of the pelvis in the the leg associated with like the front leg that's pronating and the rear leg that's supinating? Uh, Maybe that's, that's kind of where I wanted to go. And that's why I asked that other question first, just because I wanted to get, draw some context.
0: Yeah, cool. All right. Back glider lunge. Front leg will be your pronating leg. Back leg will be your supinating leg. So there's certain things that have to occur in the pronating leg. At the ankle, I want to see of the pronating leg, that forward leg, I want to see the ankle be able to dorsiflex and internally rotate, right? The, the rear foot that is. I want to see that subtalar joint, talacruel, dorsiflex, talacruel, and then internally rotate that subtalar joint. Um, I, I want to see the arches dropping. All three, I want to see them loading. Uh, At the knee, the knee should be flexing and it should be traveling in the direction of the big toe of that forward foot. So, traveling medially. That will load your VMO, like we spoke of earlier. That movement toward the midline, the the femur is going to be rotating internally on top of the, the slower moving tibia. So, not to get too jammed up to this, the knee joint itself will actually be externally rotating even though it's traveling immediately, just because the femur is traveling faster. The pelvis should be also rotating m- toward the midline or toward um, the back foot away from the, f- the, the forward leg, especially if you can consider that back leg is sliding back, you're reaching with it. So it's drawing the pelvis around to that side. And the pelvis itself, I want to see anteriorly tilting rotating. And I want to see the side of that forward hip. I want that pelvis to be a little bit higher. So I'm really loading into that glute in a lot of different planes of motion. So that's what I'm looking for in the forward leg. Are all those things happening? And they happening kind of at the same time, not one faster than the other, but let's just kind of look at that whole kind of global picture. Then on the back leg, the opposite is going to occur, except the pelvis itself being a bony structure it's still tilting forward, but that back leg is sliding back behind it. And if we took a still frame, like I took a photo of when that leg is back behind and we just kind of tilted that photo so that the, the, the femur is pointing straight up in the picture, we'll see that the pelvis is related to that femur. It's actually in a posteriorly tilted position. Do you follow me with that? It's yeah. kind of hard to think about. Uh, yeah. Okay. So
1: th- for that back, for that. For the back leg? That back leg. Yeah, 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 okay.
0: So if we were to just take a still shot, we would see that the forward hip and the pelvis on that side is anteriorly tilting. But due to where the femur is on the back leg, that side we would consider posteriorly tilting. So it's just the opposite. That leg that's going back, that's extending the hip. In order for me to keep anchored, like you say, between the first and the fifth met head, I'm going to have to create an arch in my foot. So all the arches are reforming. There's the supination that's going to create external rotation around the, the rear foot and ankle. The talocrural ch- is going to plantar flex and the subtalar is going to externally rotate. And that's going to create extension through the knee on the back leg and extension through the hip. And the leg itself is going to be externally rotating, drawing even more of that pelvis around. Those are the things that I look for from a joint to joint perspective. That's a lot to kind of take in, but that's, that's basically what I'm looking for. I'm not looking at muscles. That's the, Mm -hmm. that's the cool thing too, is I'm kind of trying to do the superhero x-ray vision thing. And can I peel back the muscles that I'm seeing and just watch the bones? What are the bones doing? Because um, there's fewer bones than muscles. And that's a lot simpler if I only have to watch a few things moving compared to hundreds of things. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Did I, how did i do with answering that question yeah that was good that
1: that was I, okay i asked it because i felt like that slide slider revere reverse <laughs> revere. <laughs> that slider reverse lunge is such a good like it's just such an amazing way at least you know from what i've learned to you it's like my favorite way to see those things mm. drawn out like front foot pronating anterior tilt in the front hip little internal rotation happening through that front leg and then you have pure opposite in the back leg whereas like i it's funny because up until i met you and i started getting to gary ward stuff and in that universe like i had i would never i mean i had athletes like in my time at cal at the first half of my time at cal we did slide board lunges and stuff but i never like never was thinking about any of these things and as soon as you yeah. n- know it it's like this gives you because it's, it's just beautiful so you have the yin and yang you have the front leg you know how's your pronation front leg how's your supination back leg and if you can so start to see trends happening too with all these athletes doing this. You can see exactly what's going on. was just such a beautiful Yeah, and exercise. for
0: most, most of the athletes that, that I put that forward to, given that movement, they're not actually, they've got okay pronation mechanics on that forward leg because they can see it, they can feel it, they're, they, and I can coach them there. But I watch the back leg and it's not supination mm-hmm. mechanics. And if it's not supination, there's only one other alternative. That back leg is actually, if it's not supinating, then it's pronating when it shouldn't be. Like somebody that does a lunge, that back leg, if we're doing this kind of approach to really training proper mechanics, that back knee should not be bending. But people have a hard time extending through that knee because that requires the hip to fully extend. And it requires proper mechanics down the foot. So there's a whole bunch of uh, ingredients to that overall recipe. And if we're missing one of the ingredients, chances are you're not going to get the whole whole recipe to come true. So yeah, I love that too. I love that movement. I I do it often. Sometimes I'll have somebody hold on to a rubber band with uh, the the hand on the back leg side. So let's say the left foot is forward, the right leg is gliding back. I'm going to have them hold on to a resistance band that's pulling them forward uh, with their right hand. So it, it really accentuates also the opposition of the upper body compared to what's going on down below which we haven't even delved into, but it's just another element, just like arm swings in one direction, leg swings in the opposite. Can we get that opposition through the trunk and the torso? And you start lighting those areas up. Oh man, you see their eyes just go bug-eyed and they're going, holy cow, this, I've never felt anything like this before. And that's the magic. That's cool.
1: Yeah, I know. Even in a more uh, a simpler version of that, like um, I love Jace Rader's extreme isometric series and the extreme iso lunge. It's kind of like that, but it's just you're not rotating yeah. at all. And but even in that, when I see a lot of coaches program that, and especially after some of the first podcasts on this series, the, they were talking about those, and, and then you see them start to pop up on social media. Almost like I would say two thirds of all the videos of people doing them. The athletes were not having a straight back leg, which that's how Jay programmed it. Straight back leg, you have this. And Jay's Mm -hmm. um, Jay's system or or his vision with that was more muscle-centric, like it was more agonist antagonist. But it it did show up in the joints because you had a bent front leg with the hamstring pulling and a straightened. The back leg was, you're trying to crank that straight. And I saw so many people just have the back leg just bent, this the knee below the hip. And and I'm like, I don't know, just to me, it's interesting that how can people, I guess, you know, it's just it's just something it's easy to miss. Like I, I, it's one of those little pet peeves. I see people doing it, and I'm just like, no, no, like. But I don't know. I mean, maybe I need to do a better job explaining it. But it's almost like that's like the 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 first the simple lay, layer with no rotation. It's just get that back leg nice and straight. There's and then you understand it's supinating too. It's it's an opposite. We're working opposition. We're working front leg pronation, back leg supination. Even though it's neutral, but I just feel like that was always such an important part of that. That lunge was getting that back leg straight. Truly huge. Yeah.
0: It's huge. And once you know it, you can't unsee it when you watch those people do it, right? And if you just think about, if you want to think about the muscle tissue that is meant to propel and sling us forward, if that back leg is not fully extending, if we're not teaching it how to really lengthen, then what is its contraction potential, its power potential going forward once that foot comes off the ground? You're, you're just going to be diminishing the, the ability of that leg to really be explosive and, and with a knee drive. I mean, it's, it's really something. Uh, that's why just getting those simple mechanics, although there's a lot of complexity about it, but if we can just simply teach the, the body to pronate, man, uh, it, it's just, it makes a world of difference.
1: Yeah. I, I want to use the last, uh, the last bit is because we've, we've talked, I, I'll have to save the neurology for another time. Sadly, I would have loved to get into that, but I know that'll, no I mean, problem. You know, that would have been a long, I don't want to have to cut the neurology short either. I don't want to like have to be like, Hey, here's five minutes to talk about neurology. Rocky. You know, like let's, <laughs> let's give it its due. Um. Okay. So, but this is, this is something I think is interesting. And you were the first person that I had uh, when I trained with you that I had that whoa moment in the sense of, you know, it's easy. Pronation, I think, is the the biggest easiest thing. If you've lost pronation, if you're not pronating properly, we need to pronate properly, and that being really helpful. Um, with the supination, though, I had never really thought of it in terms of oh, well, you don't, you're not supinating well, like you don't supinate well. And and I remember, we did a drill with you where you had me, um, like basically like doing like feet were planted and doing essentially twists to my it was to my left side, and then my left leg you were helping that actually, uh, stay relatively neutral so that my foot, my left foot could supinate more basically so that the inside of my left foot, it's funny, my eyes are going this direction. Cause I'm recalling like NLP, <laughs> I feel my eyes doing it. I'm like, let's stuff of this. Uh, anyways, the, um, <laughs> so it was basically like if I, if I was to not keep the inside edge of my foot on the ground, as I was rotating my trunk left, then I'm not Letting that arch come up, I'm not letting the supination happen, and you were giving me drills with the wedges where I was twisting to that left side and letting the the inside edge of my left foot stay to, to supinate it more a little bit, externally rotate the tibia, and then I remember after that like you you would always test it out like you know do a do a biofeedback, do a mobility and I think my mobility was good, but then I remember jogging around and like I just felt this incredible spring out of that foot like it was it was mm-hmm. more feeling a little bit like I felt like, and I think I've talked about this before on some of like my high school self, where I could just not even have to really warm up and just go dunk it, like, bam, like no problem. And, and there is that, I, I do believe that all the, the emphasis on weightlifting and heavy weightlifting throughout my 20s, although again, very good for a period of time, you keep doing it enough, 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 you do start to feed a little bit more of a pronation bias into your system because of the bottom, the adaptation out of the bottom, as long as you are pronating to get there. And I think I became I just a little more pronated over the years, like just a little mm-hmm. bit, like a few millimeters. And it's almost like kind of cranking that foot back into that slightly more supinated orientation. I was like, man, I just feel that spring again, like it's back. And anyways, that was my little story. Uh, could, so I, with that as a, as a launching point, I'm curious, like when like, people who are, have lost supination, resupination, just kind of going into that a little bit more, how are you checking for it? Uh, and then movements and exercises that help to restore that.
0: Sure. I mean that that in itself like what you just described standing with your feet parallel underneath you, no shoes on, just no socks on and just observing what your feet do. When you turn your body to the left, we should see the left foot, the arches begin lifting up and those three points of contact stay on the ground. Meanwhile, the right foot that you're rotating away from should start to exhibit more pronation where the right foot arches are dropping, and still the three points of contact stay on the ground. And if we were to rotate in the opposite direction, the opposite would happen, right? If I rotate right, my right foot should be lifting upward into pronation with the arches, and the left foot should be dropping down. So that in itself is a really nice assessment. Can I see how the body behaves as you simply turn to the left and to the right, which is something that we do um, every time we swing a leg forward, we're, we're creating rotation. So it'd be nice to know that. So, so with those wedges that we use, uh, they, they serve a few purposes. One is, can if there's space underneath an area that is lifting off the ground, can I put the wedge underneath so that I fill the space so that the surface of the foot still has something to contact? So that creates a nice connection to the brain which gives me a nice proprioceptive feedback that I still have contact. And that means I can push into whatever I'm contacting and it's not going to go in the opposite direction and lift further away. Hopefully, that's it's just giving me some feedback. And the wedges can also serve as a way of creating a different speed or, or chain reaction. Can I speed something up by it rolling down the wedge or the inclined plane? Mm-hmm. Or can I slow something down by putting in the opposite direction and having it hit the incline plane? So using those wedges and getting you to experience what it was simply like to rotate to the left and then back to the right. What we were really doing is we were reminding all of the joints, basically from the foot on up, how they should behave when pronation is occurring, as well as when supination is occurring. Now, where I put those wedges was unique to that particular foot of yours. If we were to do the same thing over on your right foot, mm-hmm. I have a really strong feeling that they would not be in the exact same place because that foot is probably playing a slightly different role in your life than the left foot was. So by rotating to one direction, certain muscles are lengthening and loading. A stretch shortening reflex is about to occur to drive me in the opposite direction. And then when I go in the opposite direction, the exact opposite muscles are going to have to do the same thing. They're going to have to lengthen and load. And decelerate that action, proprioceptors turn on, stretch shortening reflex occurs, and it brings me back to a central place. So it's this, it's this pendulum that we're swinging back and forth, and it has to travel through the center every time. And I might be able to encourage a certain behavior at one end of the spectrum or the other to create a better timing, a better pattern, a better sweeping action. I mean, if we could talk like an analogy is that, that would be how I would explain it. And just that simple motion. And that's in, of course, transverse plane. We could do the same thing in regards to forward and backward action and, and noticing sagittal plane. And we could do this lateral shifting or, or uh, translating to see what it's like in the frontal plane. Can I give these joints all this experience and three-dimensional space and change how it's behaving if it needs changing.
1: Yeah, that's good stuff. I, you know, it. I just love the idea that every exercise, um, and, and you know, and even heck, even bilateral exercises, if you're looking at them the right way, can be an opportunity to see pronation potential, supination potential. Do your joints know how to behave for both actions? And I think for me, my left foot, particularly, and you're, you're right, because my right foot is actually more supinated, my left foot is more pronated. Uh, you know, and I I don't believe in perfect asymmetry. I mean, you do different athletic no. skills. You don't need perfect symmetry. Uh, no. But that foot, I think, had forgotten a little bit on how it ideally would behave in supination for me doing my single leg jump, like that history. And, and just all the lifting and things like that, you know, just doing a ton of lifting and not a lot of jumping over a long period of time, that left foot had just forgotten how to behave a little bit with a little more supination. And so, you putting those wedges in and having me do yeah. the twists, like really... Just re relearned, and ever since then too, I've been thinking about how do I like. You could even look at it in sprinting, like how like if I'm doing different sprint drills, I think about the pronation end of thing is a little bit more squatty running, where I'm squatted down and running I'm a little more flexion, internal rotation bias midfoot, and the supination is a little more loney running, where the foot's coming high from the back down to the front, and you're striking more on the outside edge. Like I I'm trying to take this even into like, all right, how is this version in sprinting? How is this? You know, it's just it's oh. so cool to see the two the two opposite ends of it. all. No,
0: I love that. I gotta say um, pronation is your lowest point. Supination is your highest point. Just like you say, like whether it's squatting or driving off. I mean, when you are at the end of the pronation, you are at your most compressed, most decelerated, most loaded place. And then you've got to start to unload and spring Mm -hmm. and lift off and away. So you're going to get to the highest pinnacle. And it's funny that, you know, you were talking just a moment ago about, um, when we were doing that drill and you started running around and you felt like, um, I'm just picturing you opening up your high school yearbook and it instantly brought you back memories because you saw something that related to something earlier. Well, the same thing holds true in the body. We get we got you to experience something that you hadn't experienced probably in some time and instantly it took you back in time and gave you that memory or the memory of movement. I love that. I, I totally love how that all plays into each other. It's it's there's no coincidence.
1: Yeah. That was such a cool experience. Yeah. And I even I never look at even like just even like plate twists. Like I'll see a video of someone doing a plate twist like side to side, like or or you know, a low to high chop with a plate. And I'm just like, I'm just looking at the feet now. I'm like, are the feet <laughs> is one foot pronating <laughs> and one foot supinating? I don't even care what the torso is. I mean, I do care what the trunk's doing, but you know, it's like <laughs> it's always an extra reason to 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 make it a true whole body exercise. Uh, I do want to get okay, so I do want to get into loaded carries for this, um, and then we'll, we'll we'll call it a podcast, uh, just because okay. I'm I'm so, you know, Through your work and just think, you know, Dan John's work. Just thinking about it yeah. myself. I, I mean, you know, the last time I've ever since I've I've kind of reinvigorated loaded carries into my program, and I think about this too. I I used to work moving uh, in the summers between, so I do track season. I go to college and do track season, you know, October through you know uh, early June or late May, basically. And then the summer I do moving. So I'm like basically doing loaded carries all summer, up the stairs, down the stairs, the boxes in the front, boxes in the back, you know, all sorts of different sizes and shapes and all this stuff. I felt like that was such good training um, in, in such an interesting way. Anyways, uh, you know, what is going on in loaded carries from, I, I guess, you know, I and I piggyback on this from like, I think about in sup- supination too, because you kind of, if you're at least kind of tall with a loaded carry, I feel like there's that little bias to it, but like what's going on with a loaded carry for the body that the body could just really respond to that well neurologically? And how do we like leverage that? Um, maybe just the open-ended, but somewhat specific question on no, that carries for you.
0: That's cool. I, I think loaded carries are farm strength, pure and simple. Like and what I mean by that is there's gym strength and there's farm strength. Farm strength is lifting hay bales and tossing them up onto the truck or off the truck, loading them up onto the loft and so on. Picking up things and shoving them over your head, shoveling and so on. That is full body integrative strength. And if you look at Olympic wrestlers, the majority come from the Corn Belt. They're farm boys. They don't spend a lot of time in the gym. They grew up lifting cattle, basically. And that is, in essence, that is pure and simple core integrative strength. And when it comes to weighted carries, well, Um, I would say chaos reigns supreme, not doing the same type of weighted carry over and over in a repetitive nature, because then you're developing just one pattern of movement. When if we're talking about a three-dimensional activity that is taking 360 joints and moving through three-dimensional space uh, with the foot strike occurring less than a second when we're sprinting around the track, we want to have three-dimensional integrated core strength that emanates from our center and out the hands, feet, and for that matter, even out the head. So loaded carries are huge, whether the carry is overhead, by your side, out in front. I love loaded carries not only from top down where we're we're taking things and we're compressing downward into the body. So the body is forced to try and fight that by lifting upward. I love loaded carries um, with a belt around a person's waist with bands off to one side. Mm. So they're having to walk while they're being drawn to one side. I, I love uh, sagittal plane, frontal plane, and transverse plane resistance when we're talking loaded. And, and I don't necessarily mean just grabbing a dumbbell, but you could, I, there's times where I'll have somebody doing a waiter's carry and I've got a rubber band around their waist and I'm just giving it a yank every now and then mm-hmm. to wake it up. And speaking of wake up, I guess, The thing about unilateral weighted carries, because I know we want to talk about that a little bit, unilateral, the brain goes, okay, I've got this overload on one side, and I don't want to just fall over like Fred Flintstone getting delivered those big brontosaurus ribs at the end of the cartoon and the car tipping over. My brain goes, okay, the other side that doesn't have the weight, I need you to stabilize us. I need you to draw us into a balanced position so we can keep walking. Or just keep standing. So even though one side of the body is doing the lifting, the other side, the brain is sending signals to stabilize. So that is like a one-two punch. If I'm lacking stability on one side of my body, I'm going to load the opposite side, and I'm going to see what that's like. Now, of course, you know it, it's almost counterintuitive, right? If I'm if I'm unstable on my right shoulder, then I'm going to do a whole bunch of stability work in that shoulder, which may serve a really good purpose, but I might want to wake up the signals that stabilize that first. So I'm actually going to load the opposite side to a waiter's carrier or a farmer's or whatever you want to call it, and then I'll go to the side that is not as stable. And will that make a difference? Well, we'll have to assess and reassess. But yeah, loaded carries are fantastic, provided that people are in the proper position to accommodate the movement. So we've got to look at a person's posture, and we've got to look at how they move, we got to really assess them and see how where is it that they need more strength, more more stability, more mobility, and so on. And then can those loaded carries come into play to benefit the overall outcome?
1: Got it. What would be like? Would there be any contraindications where you wouldn't like want? Like you mentioned posture, like just someone who just really has a hard time moving. Period. And you don't want to load like that. Like what would there be any sort of? postures or, or could you describe any postures where it's like no like let's let's do some i mean you have to be pretty just down the dysfunctional tra- train of things to probably be there but i am curious what you're
0: yeah i mean when it comes to athletes i was actually just talking to a strength coach uh, with carolina hurricanes the nhl team and and during the in-season he doesn't do any loading basically um, of of bar squats or anything he doesn't want to do loaded movements to 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 affect the spine mm-hmm. So he stays off of upper body loads. He would rather load into the hips, weight belts or Kaiser belts or things of that nature. He's going to load that way. That makes complete sense to me. If you've got somebody with some spondylothesis or something of that nature, I'm not going to load the vertebral column. I'm not going to load that spine. I don't want to compress it any further. If anything, I want to create some space there and maybe loading into the lower body um, would be good. I could see um, perhaps holding onto a medicine ball or something very close to your center and, and loading that way. But I think loading below the spine for a lot of people is going to be more advantageous. Um, and then maybe if, if obviously if people don't have proper range of motion in certain joints, then trying to load, let's say the shoulder joint, if somebody can't properly raise their arm fully overhead with their arm extended at the elbow and proper flexion of the shoulder and the scapula dropping back, do I really want to load something that can't handle the weight? So I want to make sure that they can, they fully gain proper movement overhead and then slowly load into that. Otherwise what's going to happen is they're going to flex into the elbow. And now it's, it's the deltoids. It's the triceps. Heck, it's, it's a whole bunch of muscles that are loading that weight over their head as they're walking around rather than a straight arm that feeds that force down through into their center and into the deeper musculature that we're trying to attack.
1: Yeah. I I like a couple of things that you said that I, one, I had never thought of this as like having a band that you, as soon as you said the band in my head, I'm like, Oh, it'd be really cool to occasionally pull it and make it chaotic. And then you, like you said, it like five minutes later, like inducing randomness to it. Uh, I, I, it is funny how many, I, I see this more with youth athletes, um, you know, that occasional like youth athletes that I'll see, uh, who are doing, um, the loaded carries, and it's funny because Jeremy Frisch, who was just on, was talking about like the the a very unfortunate situation where like real young kids are forced to do this because the adults do it. Like the eight year olds are doing, you know, and the parents are watching. Yeah. It's it terrible. But like, yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of like like fourteen year olds walking around who just like really bored when they're doing loaded. Like they just like they're they look like they're off their heads are off to the side. Like they're I don't know what they're thinking about. There's no intention. I'm like man, you could just yeah throw something on their waist and just like be yanking it every now and then, and then that'll that'll zero their focus right in. Um, but you, you said, um, you were talking about how, if you're up, like in a standing position, you have weight that's pulling you down and your body has to expand to overcome it. Uh, Something I was thinking about in this world of expansion and compression, like I think of compression as like a heavy squat, heavy deadlift, like positions of flexion with a lot of axial loading and compression. And in a way I've almost thought as the loaded carries are almost like, um, you know, not completely because you still do have an extra low, but it almost is like the, the opposite of that in a way. Like your body gets to re-expand itself a little bit and you're generally in a more supinated position because you're standing upright. You're not flexing. I mean, do you, what do you think about like that idea? Like, I, I guess it fits with what you were just saying, but it's almost like the, it's another kind of, um, I don't know, anti, anti-virus, anti venom to, to, to heavy compressive lifting. I'm not sure. I'm just curious what you would think about that idea.
0: No, I, I think you're right on. I think, you know, when we're talking about back squats or anything like that, you are trying to control your, your flexion all the way down. And with a loaded carry, you're really, every step you take, there is a moment where you're going to feel that compression, but it's going to elicit a very quick supinatory response or extensive response compared to, say, the squat or, or single leg squat or anything of that nature, or even for that matter, like a lunge. Uh, the loaded carries are all about anti-gravity, right? We're, we're driving away because we've got such a heavy load. Um, And yeah, I just go back to that farm strength. I look at how farm kids are raised and, and what they, the type of athletes they grow into. I mean, it's no wonder that the big 10, the, the football teams and collegiate football, Oklahoma, has been a vanguard like it, just a juggernaut for how hmm. many decades now Nebraska Iowa, all these kids from the farm hmm. belt and the corn belt are going and playing football yeah it's cultural to some degree where that's what they have, but man they're working on the farms and they are bruisers and more so than other other areas of the nation so there's there's something to that and I honestly there's this like Business idea in the back of my head. Maybe I'll I'll touch base with you about Joel, where we just open up a farm and we call it a gym, and we have people come work out and throw hay bales around and lift little calves and and um, you know just things like that. Milk in a squat position, man. We would turn this nation on its head, and they would be strong. So. You know, we'll, we'll
1: talk what's, about that. Yeah. Later. What's, what's old is new. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Frank, Frank French was talking about, uh, who wrote exuberant animal. I think it was Jim Thorpe, the decathlete. Like he would go like mm-hmm. a third of his year was just doing like riding horses and doing manual labor or something. Like, it's like, this is, this is here. Like it's just, just modern lifestyle. We just don't do that anymore. Oh, no. man. Um, yeah. That's such a cool stat with football. So you would say just generally speaking, like, like loaded carrying, because you're in an upright position is more like supinated by nature. Like it's just a more supinated, supinating, relatively speaking. Uh, would yeah. you say that? Yeah. I, I, I kind of felt that like too, but I just wanted to confirm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the entire gait cycle, not the uh, geek out anymore, but there's only really one moment in time in which we pronate. Everything else is all about supination. Yeah. You know, and if we pronate well, then chances are we're going to supinate well. But if we don't pronate well, then that's just going to lead to really poor supination. But yeah, the time spent—if we look at the gate cycle, almost everything is all about pushing off, pushing off, pushing off. There's only one time where we are coming crashing down on the ground. Everything else is trying to get away.
1: Got it. Cool. Well, hey, uh, I'll leave it there, Rocky. I mean, it, it's—it is. I, I should just make a note that every time I write you questions, I just. <laughs> double the time because there's, there's just so much good stuff to dig into and it's that's an awesome thing i, I love these conversations or i mean honestly i don't even think i really looked at my questions and those are always awesome conversations just because I, I love little rabbit trails and so many like nuances to dig into there's really good stuff today rock yeah i'm gonna go uh, do some uh, slider lunges here pretty soon in a few hours so there I'll, we go yeah I'll, that I'll, sounds
0: I'll, great you know and of course yeah i'm welcome back we talked about neurology and we'll have to do it another time i'm totally up for that because when it comes to the visual System, 80% of our world comes through our eyes. And it's, uh, and it's really cool to start tapping into that and the vestibular system and, and all these little reflex points through the body. It, it just sets your game up as a coach and an athlete to just be sure that you're at a higher level. It's just it, so I look forward to that. Yeah. And thanks I, for having me on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'll make a note in my calendar here down the line. We'll have to reconnect. So, uh, anyways, thank you again, Rocky. Really appreciate it, man.
0: Yeah, my pleasure
1: thanks again for tuning in it was great having you here before you leave i wanted to let you know that rocky snyder will be speaking at the perform better orlando clinic which is being hosted june 3rd through the 5th so if you want to see him live speaking on how he'll be integrating wedges with the feet you can check out that perform better Uh, seminar that
0: is June 3rd through the 5th, 2022. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.